For those of you who pay attention to my weekly email, and I'm always thrilled when I meet one of you, <laughs> this isn't the sermon I had planned to preach. Thursday afternoon, as I was reading again through all these passages appointed for this week, I sensed the Holy Spirit speaking a different word to me through them. As it says in this reading from Hebrews, the word of God is living and active. And sometimes it takes a different shot at us on one day than the next. Or maybe if it's, since it's a sword, it should take a swing at us, I guess. But I've learned to pay attention to that voice. Although sometimes that can mean a lot of extra work, especially on a weekend when three of your four grandchildren are visiting. So rather than preach from the gospel passage as is my usual jam, I'd like to ask you to turn to Isaiah 53 in your Bibles or on your devices. By the way, the heart of what I was going to say about the gospel passage is that Jesus does not rebuke James and John for asking because the urge to power and dominion is actually a godly urge but it can be corrupted and that's what we must be aware of not power itself but the corruption of power that comes about because of the fall so that was the that was basically the point of my sermon most of you know that i spend some of my time off training pilots whose goal is to fly for the airlines I have well over 2,000 hours acting as pilot in command, so flying feels pretty intuitive to me at this point, or at least I thought it did. I haven't piloted an airplane for a little over 18 months, and it turns out it's a perishable skill. And because, don't worry, I'm still alive, and because I've been asked by my flight school to take on one student, I thought it would be a, a wise to take a tune-up flight with another flight instructor, actually one of my former students, who I took through an instrument and commercial rating. I thought it would be good to do that prior to flying with an examiner, which is something that instructors have to do annually to stay current. I was glad I did, because I was rusty and nervous, really, really nervous. And even though my, my stomach was in knots and my, my hands and knees were shaking almost uncontrollably, I had the presence of mind at one point to just momentarily be amazed by the arresting beauty of a clear fall morning over the Chesapeake. I could see the Atlantic Ocean from Annapolis. I love the fall, especially flying in the fall with all its gorgeous, crystal clear, breezy, and by the way, you would thought I would have paid better attention to the wind forecast for today, but these clear, high-pressure days, fall is by far my favorite season. My makeup being what it is, however, that thought was immediately re replaced by the depressing realization that winter is coming. And I 
hate winter. Apart from Christmas, I hate nearly everything about it. Nothing, nothing more than the long, dark nights. I think I'm feeling that especially keenly in this moment because it's felt so much to me like we've been living through a kind of dark winter since the March of 2020, since March of 2020. In the world in general and the U.S. in particular, a pandemic that will not go away, exacerbated by racial issues and sexual identity issues and sexual abuse issues and political issues and employment issues and economic issues and trust issues. These are just a few, but the list is extensive. Always winter, it seems, and never Christmas. And even though there was just a little tease of metaphorical spring back around the 1st of July, it did not last long. And it feels like winter again. And I know I'm not the only one that feels that. My desire as a pastor is to help you, you flourish even in the winter times, the winter times of your life, to help you say like that hymn, my hope is built on nothing less, when all around my soul gives sway, then Christ is all my help and stay. Not that many people in this culture have that desire for you, but I do. And I know Steve does too. Or he'd better. <laughs> no. His heart is even more passionate than mine about those kinds of things. One of the reasons I do is because I know that even beyond all the huge problems around us, there are other winters in our lives. Winter is coming for every one of you. There are health winters and faith winters and marriage winters and parenting winters and vocational winters. And there will inevitably for all of us, the ratio still being one to one, one final winter, death. And in those winters, you will want, no, you will need a Christ who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And you'll probably want a pastor or two who are better at weeping than at laughing. And you will want hope, not cheery, blithe, sunny hope, but solid, unshakable, everlasting hope. God guaranteed hope in the face of darkness. And that hope is rooted in and based on the suffering, death, and burial of the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. So let's look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 12. And actually, I'm going to start with verse 53 a passage normally reserved every year for Easter vigil, but also one that's read on this Sunday every third year, paired perfectly with what Jesus 
said of himself in Mark 10.45, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The book of Isaiah contains four what have come to be called servant songs. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, if you're keeping score. Chapter 49, verses 1 through 13. Chapter 50, verses 4 through 11. And chapter 52, verses 13 through chapter 53, verse 12. In Jewish tradition, the servant of the Lord in all four passages refers to the nation of Israel. And there may be some eschatological truth to this. God certainly has big plans for them. The New Testament, however, identifies the servant of the Lord in Isaiah as our Savior. Jesus Christ, a unique servant that takes preeminence above all others in scriptures. The final servant song in Isaiah 53 is about an innocent suffering servant who dies in the place of the guilty, foretelling in detail the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53.3 says of him, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Jesus was despised by the religious people of his day and rejected as their Messiah. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, in the first servant song, introduces him. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This passage is specifically applied to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 through 20. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved one with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. When Jesus was baptized by John, the Spirit of God descended on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is an allusion to Isaiah 42. So, the teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is this servant in the servant song prophecies. We know that in hindsight. And even though Isaiah himself didn't fully understand who this servant would be, there was much he understood about his coming. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And in this one verse, Isaiah reveals, reveals four things that happened to him in three ways that Jesus responded. 
first he was oppressed, a word that often, a word most often used in the Old Testament of what taskmasters do to make the life of slaves miserable. They demand that they make bricks without straw. They, they press them hard and bring a terrible sense of pressure and burden and stress on them. Jesus experienced this in the way his enemies continually stalked him and finally captured and tormented him. Second, he was afflicted. The word implies humiliation, being brought low, treating with contempt, shaming, belittling, scorn, jest, mockery, ridicule, and derision. All of that was experienced by Jesus in his passion. Third, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. The actual slaughter doesn't come until verse 8. Here he's just led to it. And that's a terrifying thing. It's one thing to be oppressed and afflicted if you know you'll walk out of jail in a few hours or even days. It's another thing altogether if you know that it's all leading to slaughter. Jesus knew it. It did not come as a surprise to him. Fourth, he was sheared like a sheep before its shearers. He was stripped of his clothes, his friends, his honor, and his divine protection. No one, no one has ever been as naked as Jesus was on the cross. Which leads to the way the servant responded to all of this. Three times we're told in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before it's, it is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. His response was an amazing silence, patience, and acceptance. In Matthew 26, verses 62 and 63, at the sham trial in the middle of the night when Jesus was accused by liars, the high priest Caiaphas asked, do you make no answer to what these men are testifying against you? And Jesus was silent. Then later, early in the morning in Mark 15, 4 and 5, Pilate says to Jesus, do you make no answer? See how many charges they bring against you, but Jesus was silent. And Pilate was perplexed. In Luke 23, 9, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod and we're told that Herod questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. Jesus knew his prophecy. He knew his calling. He was the servant of the Lord. He was the Messiah. He was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Therefore, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he didn't just suffer and respond with patient, silent obedience. He also died. In verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. He was cut off from the land of the living. He wasn't just led to the slaughter. He was slaughtered. And like all other lambs of the Passover or the sin offerings of Israel, it wasn't for his own transgressions. He was slaughtered for the transgressions of his people. He took what we deserved. This 
is the heart of the gospel of God. Jesus was cut off out of the land of the living, not for his own transgressions, but for the transgressions of his people. It runs all through this chapter. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that made us whole was on him. And by his stripes, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And verse 8 makes it crystal clear that he died. This is why 1 Corinthians 15.3 can sum up the gospel so simply and succinctly. Jesus Christ died for us according to the scriptures. Jesus died. He was cut off from the land of the living for us, for our transgressions, according to the scripture, just as Isaiah had said 700 years before. And what was the response of his generation when he was cut off? Isaiah said, who considered it? As for his generation, who considered it? The word considered isn't a word for just like noticed or perceived. It's a word for muse or ponder or meditate. And the point seems to be that we can see the greatest event in the world and yet not see it. We can, we can hear without hearing, partly because of distraction and partly because of ignorance or biblical illiteracy, even in the church. We have an incredible capacity, just like his generation, for assessing the most important things wrongly. And one of our greatest weaknesses, more today than ever, probably, is that we don't meditate on the great truths of Scripture. We don't stop or even slow down enough to truly ponder the things of God. In a survey released by Pew last year, more Americans can tell you the four houses of Hogwarts than the four Gospels. They are, by the way, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, Slytherin, and Gryffindor. And um, Ma Matthew, yeah, that's it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No, I know the Gospels. I'm kidding. But we must learn from Isaiah's indictment of the generation of Jesus. Consider, ponder, Muse, meditate, reflect, read, study, contemplate, mark, and inwardly digest the truth of Scripture more than any other thing. And this is the greatest truth of all, that the servant of the Lord was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of his people. By the way, just one more shameless plug for morning prayer. The links are on our website. We read through the scriptures every year. We have been through since the beginning of COVID, the Psalms aloud probably 17 times, 16, 17 times. It's a great way to learn scripture. And only takes a half hour every day. Well, actually four days a week, right? So there you go. Finally, 
Verse 9 speaks of the burial of the servant. Verse 7, he suffered patiently. Verse 8, he died for the people and scarcely anyone took it to heart. And now he's buried. Verse 9 says, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. This is an incredible prophecy. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. There's a twist here that unmasks the hope running through all of these verses. Verse 7, there's hope because the servant is suffering, not as a guilty sinner, but as a sin-bearing lamb. In verse 8, there's hope because he dies not for his own sins, but for the transgressions of his people. And in verse 9, there's hope because he's mixed up with wicked men and is dying. But unlike all common criminals of his day, he ends up in the tomb of a rich man. He was with a rich man in his death. Matthew 27, 57 through 59 says, There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also became a disciple of Jesus. And Joseph took the body and laid him in his own new tomb. Why is this significant? Why does Isaiah prophesy it? Why does Matthew tell us about it? Why did God plan it that way and prophesy 700 years ahead of time that it would be so One commentator speculates that the reason is this. When Jesus died, the work of redemption was done. He had cried, it is finished. He had suffered. He had been assigned to a place with the wicked, dying like a criminal between two thieves. And the expectation was that he would have his grave, if any, that he would have his grave, if any grave at all, with the wicked. Only he didn't. The work of redemption was done. There was no more need for humiliation. Instead, God signified the honor of his servant by arranging for him an honorable burial in the grave of a rich man, the disciple Joseph of Arimathea. And we know the resurrection's coming. But even in the burial of Jesus... was this undercurrent of hope. He may have looked like a criminal dying for his own crimes, but he wasn't. He was the servant of the Lord. And when the work of suffering like a sacrificial lamb and dying for the transgression of his people was done, God began to honor him, even in the way that he was buried. So when you pass through the winter seasons of your life, and you will... That's guaranteed. And especially when you come to that last winter of death, please, please, please don't turn to another place. Remember, ponder, meditate on Jesus, the servant of the Lord, his suffering as an innocent lamb, his death for your transgressions, and even his honorable burial with the rich. Fix your eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. What other hope do you have? So go out and enjoy the sunshine of this beautiful, though windy, fall day. And know that when it fails, and it will fail, God will not. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.